coming straight from the cockpit. It's another episode of Lunatic Fringe with the fucking pilot. Ready, set, go. All right, we've got another episode of the Lunatic Fringe going. Uh, I am once again the fucking pilot in the can. This time I'm on my own, but uh, long distance via Skype, we've got somebody with a whole lot to say about this lifestyle. So tell me, who are you? Uh, my name is Dan Brodsky-Chenfeld. Dan BC, if I'm not mistaken. That's a Brodsky-Chenfeld's a mouthful, so it got uh, it got shortened to BC the first day I ever walked on a drop zone. They couldn't fit Brodsky-Chenfeld on the handwritten manifest. So. so now what drop zone would that have been? I started jumping. Actually, it was a tiny little drop zone north of Columbus, Ohio, in Centerburg with a little 172 and a, a little hut where we kept all the old rigs in and a grass strip and then moved uh, when the fall came and that little drop zone closed. It was always closed in the fall and winter. I went down to Green County Sport Parachute Center in Xenia, Ohio, and that's uh, where I did most of my growing up. Nice, nice. So Middle America skydiving. So it was definitely seasonal when you were learning how to jump. I definitely was. Green County was open all year round if it was possible to be. So we were, if the sun was shining, we were jumping in the winter out of, you know, Cessnas and Twin Beaches with no doors and freezing our butts off. Yeah, no doubt about that, man. That's a cold way to go. You know what? couldn't do without it, though. First, you know, we'd go up, take one jump, come down and warm up for an hour and then go back up and do another one. Oh, I don't doubt it. I don't doubt it at all. Now, was was uh, skydiving your first extreme sport or did you do anything before that kind of led you down that path? Nope, this was it. What was the what was the motivation for that first jump? You know, I think I was as a little kid, just always dreamt of flying. You know, little, little kids fantasize about different things. And uh, for me, it was pretending I could fly. You know, watching birds flying in the sky, watching Superman fly, thinking, how cool would that be? Right. That is the coolest superpower of all. Then I saw, a, uh, man, this was back in the 60s. There was a, a TV show. I think it was Ripcord or one of the old shows. Yeah, and I saw I saw people in free fall and flying. And it looked like, man, that's that's they're flying. They are really flying. Absolutely. And I thought that's as close as we can come to human flight, so I'm doing it. So from the time I was five or six years old, I was looking for the opportunity to jump, and as soon as I turned 18, I found it. So 18 years old, you made your first jump. How did uh, how did mom and dad and the family feel about that? I kind of told them when I had 30 or 40 jumps. <laughs> so Fair enough. I thought it was thought it was better they didn't know, and, yeah. and they agreed. What is that better to <laughs> better to ask forgiveness than permission? Yeah, there's no reason to worry them like that. You know, I didn't, didn't know what I was doing it anyway. So once uh, once I realized uh, this was going to become a lifestyle of sorts and I was really just in love with the sport and going every weekend, I thought I better own up to it and let my parents know. Yeah, fair enough. Well, and we're also talking about a time in skydiving when, I mean, it was still extreme. I mean, not that it's not dangerous nowadays, but we've been able over the years to mitigate dangers quite a bit. But back then, it was all still being learned. Yeah, it was a it was a really great time to get started in the sport. I started did my first jump in 1980, uh, which you know some people think, man, you were a pioneer in the sport, but that's not it at all because all the hard work had really already been done. Um, the equipment had developed quite a bit, but it was in a transitional time. So I was I had the pleasure of enjoying the roots of skydiving. I mean, we did my first jumps were static line with round parachutes. Hmm. Uh, 
all free fall by yourself. There was no AFF or tandem or, or AADs or anything like that. Sure. Uh, so I had to learn uh, in that world, but it was all the all those other things and those developments were close behind. So um, I'm glad I didn't miss out on that, but I'm also glad I didn't have to spend a decade there. Yeah, no doubt about that. Now, I mean, having learned uh, in the older style, again, uh, going at it from static line and then not having AFF and all that, uh, you must just be thrilled with the advances, but do you think it took anything away from the sport? I think it added way more, way more than it took away. Uh, back in 1980, the, the people who would make a first jump were a very unique breed. Uh, you know, you it pretty much was people from 18 to 30 years old, hardly anybody older than that. Um, and few people that started jumping kept jumping late and, you know, past their mid thirties or so, cause sure. it was just beat you up too much. Mm. Um, and so it was, it was a interesting group and a unique group, but it was, uh, it didn't have a chance to open up to all the people who really wanted to jump. Um, and now, you know, we've got people, if you have the desire to jump out of an airplane, if you look at it like I did and think that's gotta be the most incredible thing in the world and, and you want to jump, you, you can. Yeah. Uh, taken people who are 100 years old on on tandems and people who come now and learn to jump they decide they want to get into the sport when they're in their 50s or 60s and they can do that they they couldn't have done that before oh very much true i mean uh even the technologies that's changed in my time in the sport we went from the older f111 uh tandem canopies that were open like uh train wrecks and and uh you just beating yourself up left right and center and the technology has changed even dramatically just in in my 20 something years in the sport uh but the changes that you've seen have been have been wonderful for sure Uh, what do you think the best change has been wow uh, that's that's a lot. I mean, I, I have to go back to the, the training. Being able to learn doing tandem and AFF, I think, has uh, been been huge. I think it's kept so many people in the sport. I think it allowed people, you know, people didn't start jumping. Back when I did, it wasn't that I wanted to go do a static line. Sure. You know, I wanted to free fall. I wanted to fly. But you had to do all the static line jumps in order to get to free fall. Then you had to free fall by yourself before you could go with anybody else. So it was a lot that went into it before you ever got to experience what it was you really were seeking. And now you start right off with that. And I think it it gives people an opportunity to really uh, see what what the sport has to offer uh, and to learn in a safe, more more secure environment. So I think the the equipment as well as the training methods uh, really at the core of what's changed everything. Yeah, I, I couldn't uh, agree more. I'm actually just behind you in that I did come in after uh, um, AFF was prevalent. And of course, that's how I learned how to jump. And uh, I can't fathom because I was trained the way I was, having learned one jump at a time in free fall by myself. Uh, it's uh, almost as alien to me as I think it is to some kids that have learned how to fly in a wind tunnel these days. Uh, it was it was horrifying. It had to be. <laughs> it had to be. You know, you'd, you'd exit, you know, we did the, the static line jumps for, from 2,800 feet. And the first solo free falls were clearing poles from 3,200 feet. <laughs> uh, and there were no AADs, you know, or anything like that. And then uh, your five-second delays were from 3,600 feet, which you would usually, you know, be completely unstable for five seconds and then just dump anyway because you had to. Uh <laughs> And each each one, there was just it was a complete solo thing. You'd exit the airplane and arch like crazy and hope for the best. <laughs> oh man! Um, 
It's uh, yet yeah, to to think back about it. it it's uh, a pretty insane way to to start out in the sport, and I I have to imagine that just the fear factor alone would weed a lot of people out that way. It almost weeded me out. You know, I mean, I really wanted to to fly like I'd you know seen people do on those shows, uh, but it was it was just had to fight through the fear every time. And as soon as you finally, you know, I remember spinning like a top for, for 10 seconds, just, oh, man. you know, thinking my helmet was going to come off spinning so fast. And, I, you know, this I finally, finally one time was able to just actually get control of myself and stay stable and, and not spin. And, uh, like, wow. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> finally, that was, I have a little bit of control of what's going on here. That was the hook, huh? That was it. Oh, that's yeah. fantastic. Well, so you you go through this insane training that uh, that just has got to be ridiculously mentally stressful, and you you get through it to the other side where you're actually in control. When does your skydiving career start funneling into um, this lifelong pursuit and passion? I mean, did you start working in the sport right away? Did you uh, just embrace being a fun jumper? I was going to uh, Ohio State University. It was my freshman year when I made my first jump. Uh, and as soon as I went, you know, the little center that I started at closed in the in the fall, and I I went down to to Green County there, uh, and I was there all the time. And they uh, they offered me a job <laughs> to basically basically do everything. You know the jobs. Sure. You've seen the jobs. You're, you're packing the parachutes, washing the planes, mowing the grass, cleaning the bathrooms, doing everything there is to do, and uh, the pay was free jumps, which is amazing. Which was amazing, and and uh, I, you know, I told him, you don't realize how many jumps I can make. <laughs> uh, and he, you know, he was counting on me not making that many. And this was all out of Cessnas and you know, in Twin Beaches and things. Uh, but I made seven hundred jumps my second year. Oh my goodness! Uh, doing that out of those, you know, out of those planes, and I would stay up all night and pack, uh, pack. You know, we had uh, about a hundred student rigs at the drop zone, and we'd use them you know, all day long, but I, we didn't need to repack during the day. So then I just stay up all night packing all the rigs and get back on the first load in the morning. Oh, you can man. do this stuff when you, you can do this when you're 18 and 19. Right. Well, you were just a monster <laughs> about it. That's amazing. <laughs> you know, I, uh, and while I was in college, just working at the drop zone, got my riggers ticket, got my instructor rating, uh, got my pilot's license, uh, and, it became, you know, my, my full-time job. And after I graduated at, at 22, I took over the drop zone. That was a DZO at 22. 22 years and, old in a DZO. Jeez, man. You I were, wasn't, uh, I wasn't, wasn't real, real bright. I was, <laughs> you were certainly ambitious though. That's for damn sure. <laughs> I was way more ambitious than I was smart for sure. <laughs> that seems uh, to be a common theme. And the, uh, the first year I had the drop zone is when Tandem's came out and we started doing FF. So we immediately started uh, uh, incorporating square square student rigs. This is in 1984, where it was really early, one of the first drop zones to do that. Uh, and uh, tandem rigs without drogues. Drogues weren't developed yet. Sure. Uh, and it was uh, just went right into it. So then it'd be, you know, right out of college, it was a business basically for me, uh, if, you, if you could call it that at the time. Boy, tandem rigs um, without drogues, that's kind of funny because, of course, in a modern tandem course, you're required to do that one drogueless jump to experience what it's like, uh, and it freaks most people out. So I can't imagine doing that on a daily. That must have been interesting. 
We did our W with them all the time at like 180 miles an hour. <laughs> oh man, that that's some hardcore flying. You're at 22 years old. You're you're running the drop zone right at the biggest transitional time in the sport for modern skydiving because this is when it's finally accessible to the general public. I mean, you guys must have just been crazy busy. Uh, you know, it was it was an interesting time because we had the round parachutes. Everybody was still using rounds, and there was just a few drop zones in the country that started transitioning to squares. Uh, but it was a hard thing to to express to uh, the new jumpers. You know, they were they would call. I mean, obviously, we had static line square and static line round. The static line round was like fifty dollars. Static line square was one hundred and twenty five. Mm. Uh, and then drop zone right down the street just had rounds and people couldn't, you know, well, we'll do the $50 one. They didn't understand why the squares were so much better. Sure. And the, the first, as soon as we got the square rigs, the first day we offered both round and square classes. And I remembered the uh, both classes, you know, two static line classes. They both got out the same, about the same time of day. Uh, we took them both up and we dropped the rounds and the rounds would, you know, drift as they would and land wherever they landed and the squares we had them on radios and they would come in and just tiptoe land in right where they're supposed to hmm. uh, and I, I watched those two and i thought man just get rid of the rounds we're not right. offering this anymore yeah we i mean that's that's pretty much the future staring you right in the face right there that's that's so there's no way we can even give this option to people to, to go ahead and jump this <laughs> stuff so we just... went just to squares then and it was uh uh, with all the other drop zones still doing rounds and doing a much at a much lesser uh, fee, uh, it really it was hard to get by. Hmm. But it was the top quality training. It was AFF. It was tandem. It was static line squares, and we even did an adjusted uh, accelerated static line where they do their five static lines, but then we take them up on a level one on because we didn't want to put them out solo. Sure. So, and this is all like I said, this is in '84, '85, really early on in this. And it just, it. it just kept going and going from there. I mean, I can't uh, – the innovations that have happened between then and now in training and uh, in skill are just too many to count. Yeah, it's fabulous to see. It really, really is. So <laughs> you you, uh, you started out CEO of this job zone at 22 years old, and, and uh, how long were you there? I was there for about five years. Uh, I had already started competing – uh, before I graduated from college. So I got on a four-way team. Hmm. And uh, part of the reason for getting taking over the drop zone was so that I could keep doing four-way. Hmm. Uh, and things weren't working out as well at the drop zone as I had hoped with the previous owners. Uh, and uh, there was a, the French team was sponsored, the French four-way team was sponsored by tag the tag watch company oh wow and suddenly they upped the ante completely these guys started doing a thousand jumps a year and they had their own airplane and they had two rigs and they had people packing for them and they had video and they had a coach and where nobody ever had anything like this before sure uh and suddenly if we wanted to stay competitive we were going to have to up the ante also because we only you know we were doing 150 jumps a year or so and just in ohio uh, so I decided if I wanted to try to win the world championships, I was going to have to get out of the drop zone business in Ohio and try to full-time train somewhere with the team. 
Which is, I mean, yeah, at that point, that's the only way to go. And if, if I'm not mistaken, uh, one of the things that's always been difficult for a United States team on kind of a global competitive market is that the U.S. doesn't really sponsor. Um, and for the longest time, it was tough for athletes to just be able to afford to do any type of training. Yeah. I mean, as you know, when it was just a weekend thing, we could all pull it off. But as soon as now it was going to require hundreds and, or a thousand jumps. Uh, there was a much bigger commitment from everybody, and there was there was never any sponsorship. When I uh, took off from Ohio, I found a team that wanted, you know, I found guys that wanted to do this in Arizona, and we were just we had to pay for all of our jumps, you know, pack for ourselves. We were living in our vans, you know, eating out of coolers and loving life. You know, it's I'm sure uh, you'll probably agree. Um, everybody that I've talked to so far over and above the jumping, uh, if you ask anyone what their favorite part of skydiving is, it's the community of it as well. Uh, just the people and the vibe and, and the way uh, skydivers tend to live life to the fullest. Uh, and I'm, I'm guessing you feel the same way, especially if you've done stuff like this. Well, they got to realize the skydiving, if you're jumping your ass off, is still maybe 10 minutes a day. Sure. Uh, but you're hanging out with everybody and, and putting the effort into it for probably 10 hours a day. Uh, it takes it takes the combination of both. When I you know look at people who really stick with the sport and even starting with students right now, uh, or the people you know like ourselves who've been doing it for a lot longer, you have to love the sport. I mean, you have to love jumping and flying and and the freedom of it all. You you've got to have that passion for the sport. But you also, but that's not enough on its own. You mm. also have to love the community. Uh, the friends, the vibe. It's such a it's such a, a great, great group of people. It really is. And I've actually I've likened it to uh, uh, the whole um, band of brothers type of mentality. Um, you're just such a tightly, tightly knit group, uh, putting yourself in in harm's way to some degree, but also having an amazing time with it. I don't know how you don't end up bonding like crazy with that group of people. And you look at the you look at the different personalities. I mean, we have it's the most uh, varied group of individuals you could ever find in one place from every ethnicity, every economic background, every sexual orientation, every, everything you think of. We've got them all at the drop zone and none of it matters. You know? Not at none all. Of, you know, none of nobody really cares as long as, you know, we have two rules at, at Scott F. Paris, two very important rules. Don't be dangerous and don't be an asshole. Awesome. And <laughs> and for the most part, that's it. You know, you can be as weird and as funny and wacky as you want. We even, we prefer it. Just adds more entertainment for all of us. Oh, it definitely keeps it more entertaining. There's no doubt about that. <laughs> um, but it's, where else do you find people who are from 18 to, you know, 85 years old, hanging out together, having a good time, laughing? Well, and, and that, that varied age range and background, but all with common ground, which is it can be a very odd thing. I remember uh, the first big drop zone that I ever worked at and was busy at. Uh, one of the employees um, would come out and jump on his days off, but his full-time job was working as a police officer in a narcotics division. And one of our active fun jumpers was a very active pot dealer. And they had just this unspoken rule that on the drop zone, it was all good, but you don't want to get caught <laughs> off the drop zone. <laughs> No, <laughs> that's the epitome of it right there. It really was. It summed it up quite well. I'm like, all right, well, so yeah, this is just kind of a different world. So yeah. you, you, you go to Arizona, you find a bunch of like-minded guys that want to go out and bust out some badass four-way. Where does that go to? Um, well, 
we stayed in Arizona and we just wanted to win. We did 800 jumps that year. Um, like I said, and we, you know, we, this is, there was no sponsorship or anything. This is just sold everything but our souls in order to do it. Uh, we were working the drop zone, so I'd be flying and doing AFF or tandems, you know, whenever we weren't jumping. Uh, and we were hoping to win the nationals that year. And we got to the nationals and had an amazing battle uh, with the top teams and ended up uh, in third. Which is still, I mean, considering uh, the kind of sponsorship and such that you're going up against is pretty damn spectacular. You know, it was uh, it was a good competition, but it was certainly less than than we wanted. You know, when you're going, you're playing to win that much. You're hoping to to come back with it, but it was it was a tight competition. And after that, we thought, well, I mean, we're out of money, we're out of time. We'd run out of peanut butter and jelly. Sure. Uh, and really figured it was probably over. You know, they're just, where, how else would we manage to pull it off again? Uh, and that was one of the first times that any drop zone ever considered sponsoring a team. I think it was the first time. Wow. Uh, we, were in, we were in Coolidge, Arizona, which was Skydive, Arizona at that time. Uh, Larry Hill, who is the owner of the drop zone. Uh, we were there, you know, the year before I'd become great friends with Larry uh, and after he saw what our team did, uh, he said, man, we, I want you guys to do it again. And we thought, well, that's great, but we're kind of broke you know, at this point. <laughs> uh, and he said, well, well, you know, I've got work. You know, he had enough stuff he wanted to do on the drop zone that, you know, between uh, building new facilities and, and flying and jumping and whatever, we managed to trade work for the jumps. Nice, nice. So you were you were working instructing. You were a jump pilot as well. So you were kind of a jack of all trades. So where where did the uh, the sponsorship and the training end up taking you? Well, we uh, we stayed very competitive. Uh, in '91, uh, they had to we uh, we still we still didn't make it. Our goal was to win the national championships and make it to the world championships, mm. uh, and still came up short of doing that. And again, the team had kind of run its, you know, course teams don't last forever. Sure. Uh, it was, everybody was ready to head in, in different directions after 91. Uh, and then in 92, uh, I had an offer from Skydive Paris uh, to move to Paris and to start a team there. Wow. Paris out in California, for, for those that don't know, and any of, the, yeah. any of the younger jumpers that are out there, there's not too many drop zones that are must-dos uh, and must-sees, but Paris is certainly one of them. It's actually the first uh, drop zone I ever jumped out of a turbine at. Yeah, and this is uh, in 92, and it, you know, I had been to Paris before. I actually, when I left Ohio, I was hoping to start a team in Paris then, but it worked out that the team happened in Arizona, so this was uh, kind of an opportunity I'd, I'd hoped for. And it was an unheard of thing. I mean, my, they wanted me to start a team, and that would be basically my job, uh, which, again, com- completely unheard of. And kind of a dream come true, really. <laughs> oh, for sure. Yeah, it was, it was amazing. Um, so we started a, a team called Paris Air Moves in the end of 91. Kept and, moving that direction. Nice, nice. So um, end of 91, you started the team up. Uh, what was your first competition with the team? We had, uh, I believe it was the Valentine's Day meet in Arizona, and the Golden Knights were there. Uh, you know, some of the other, some of the other good teams as well. Sure, sure. And now, uh, how long did that team stay together? Uh, Air Moves, uh, we, you know, Air Moves, uh, we went through a lot of issues and had the team for for two years. So different personnel, but uh, kept the team together for ninety two, ninety three. 
Okay. All right. Now, and you're still in Paris Valley now, yeah? I am. But after 93, then went to Arizona and started uh, Arizona Airspeed. I believe even the young ones have heard of them. And uh, so we started that, you know, we started Airspeed originally in 94. And then I stayed on the team till 99, then came back as an alternate on the team 2001 uh, and moved to Paris 2003. Okay, so back and <laughs> forth. Between, put it all in, a, in an abbreviated. Back, and, back and forth in between some sunny spots for sure. But uh, Arizona Airspeed, I mean, you're talking about one of the most winning teams skydiving has ever seen. Um, that must have been one hell of a ride. Uh, it was it was great. I mean, we put together basically um, an air moves team in Paris and uh, a team out of Deland led by Jack Jeffries was trying to win the world championships and we would battle it out at the nationals every year. But uh, no matter who went to the world championships, they got beat by the French team mm. with their sponsorship with the, the tag company. So we thought the only way we were going to manage to to take them down as if we all got together, stopped competing against each other and put a, put a new team together. So we combined the, you know, what we, what we thought was the best players from California and Florida and met in Arizona and started the team in 94 and we won the world championships for six years. That's just incredible. Incredible. I remember watching, uh, I, my uh, time in the sport started in 96. Uh, so by 96, uh, airspeed was already the dominant force uh, for sure, in four-way competitions. And it, it, I remember it just being the most spectacular thing to see because it just didn't even look real, the type of flying that was happening. It was amazing. Uh, it was so much fun. I have uh, <laughs> value those years immensely. And, and to see how far four-way has come since then uh, just blows me away. I, uh, I just watched, and I forget what team it was, training in one of the tunnels, and then the point numbers that are being put up now are just beyond belief it just and for the lower time skydivers that don't really know a lot about it give me a, a super brief rundown of of how a four-way team competes and wins well just about everybody has seen pictures of free fall formations where you have you know a group of with four way it's four people but you could have eight with eight way or a hundred people but uh, most everyone has seen pictures of free fall formations. so in in four-way and eight-way or any uh, formation skydiving competitions You've got a sequence of five or six formations. Each of the formations is defined by how the group is is configured. Um, and the pictures are, are pretty obvious. So you, you have different grips on each other. You're arranged in different ways. Uh, each formation is worth one point. Uh, in four-way, you have a time clock starting from the moment you exit, and it goes for 35 seconds to, to race through the sequence of formations as many times as you can. Uh, with each one scoring one point. <clears throat> and it also has to be done uh, perfectly. Each formation has to be intact. You have to show each one with all the grips together. Uh, and then everyone has to break simultaneously so everyone is apart in between the formations and then getting back together. Sure. Uh, so if you, if you can't, uh, if you are not in sync in terms of when you get off the grips, then you can be deducted points as well. Sure, absolutely. Um, so it's a, it's a race. It's a very mental sport because you've, you won't have known what the sequence of formations is going to be until you get to the competition. There's a, a dive pool with about 40 different formations, so you've practiced them all, uh, but you don't know what the sequence is going to be. 
and you don't get to practice other than on the ground. So it's a, a very mental sport also, which is which is a big part of what's so enjoyable about it. Well, and I think all of skydiving has a, a, a much larger mental side to it than a lot of non-jumpers would imagine, um, but especially in something like that. Now, when you guys got started in your four-way career, um, what would have been a good score when you were beginning and what's a good score towards the end of your team time? I mean, the, the, the numbers must have just gone through the roof. Uh, when I first started, uh, the world championships, I believe, were won by nine or ten points. Wow. Uh, <laughs> wow. Uh, once the, the French, when they got the sponsorship with TAG, took it to a whole new level. But I think in 89, they averaged somewhere around uh, 15, uh, 91, 17, and 20, the, breaking the 20-point you know, barrier was like the four minute mile for four way. Um, and this is, there were no wind tunnels then either. Keep in mind. So, you know, there was, it was only the jumps. Sure. That you, there was no other practice you could do. There was no simulators, uh, a lot of visualization and actual skydives. Well, now let me ask you, seeing as how you got started when, uh, you didn't have any other way to practice, but to do it on the ground to visualize and then to go to jump, what's your thoughts and what are your opinions on the, the wind tunnel? Yeah, it's. I mean, it's it's great as any as any advancement is. It's great when we have we have a wind tunnel at Scott F. Paris, and we put all of our AFF students in there before they jump, uh, and then again at certain levels, and uh, just to speak to them, and the, you know they the, they come out of there and, and are just so excited, so much more relaxed, so much more confident in what their abilities are, and to hear them when I tell them, you know that. You know, we never had this, you know, when I learned to skydive. And most places don't have it now. They can't even fathom that someone would jump out of an airplane without getting <laughs> in the wind tunnel first. Uh, and just the, you know, such an advancement in, in training. It's it's so much safer. Oh, I completely uh, agree. Than, than it was. So many more people can learn to do it. Uh, I think it's fantastic. And as far as the skill goes, just to develop the, the skills so much more quickly and so much more efficiently. Mm. Uh, and it's taken the sport to a whole a whole new level. Well, I was very lucky. I was very, very lucky in that I, I was probably the first generation of skydivers that had the opportunity uh, to fly pretty regularly in a wind tunnel uh, and was uh, working as an instructor in the Las Vegas tunnel a uh, long, long time ago, The one of the original tunnels out there. And because of it, ended up competing as a cameraman for a sky surfing team with someone you probably know, uh, Mary Tortomasi, way back in the day. Um, sure. And she and I were able to do things because because of that tunnel that we never would have imagined before. So I completely agree. It's It's been an amazing tool, especially for someone like me. It kind of shaped my entire career. I think it's been nothing but positive. The only downside I have seen it is that uh, people's flying skills advance more quickly than their uh, awareness, mm. uh, than their instincts. Uh, and you become sometimes overconfident in, because of your skills you know, people have the skills to go do things in skydiving that they learned in the tunnel, but they don't have the experience and the awareness to go do the same thing safely. Sure. So sometimes the when the skills uh, accelerate more quickly than your uh, than your awareness does, then I've seen it get people in, in a bit of trouble. And uh, I would imagine the same is true, not just for the free fall portion of it, too, but people go into it uh, being amazing tunnel flyers, but still have a whole lot of gear fear involved. And, and that's just stuff that has to come through jumps. 
exactly. So you have this amazing uh, competition experience and, and running a DZ and all this, but you've also gone on to do quite a few other things uh, still involving the sport, some and, and some outside. You've written a book. You do a lot of motivational speaking. Uh, how did all that stuff come about? Well, uh, the book, I was coaching the Russian eight-way team at Paris. Hmm. And uh, the sponsor of the Russian team was on the team. Uh, and he just pulled me aside one day and he said, we've been coached by a lot of people, but nobody has said, nobody has taught us the things that you're teaching us. Hmm. And he said, uh, I want you to write a book about it. And I said, what would you want the book to be about? And he said, how to win the world mate. And I said, well, that, I said, that's about 10% skydiving and 90% how to win anything else. I mean, the skydiving part is fairly, fairly simple. Uh, and he said, I, he goes, write whatever you want, but, uh, you know, include, include the skydiving things also. Wow. And I said, man, I don't, I don't have time to write a book. You know, I'm running <laughs> the drop zone. I'm, you know, I've got two, two young kids, uh, you know, I'm coaching these teams. I don't have time to write a book. And he said, how long would it take? And I said, well, it would take me three months just to brain dump on the paper, all the different ideas, um, sure. you know, that, that go into this. Uh, and I said, but that, that would not be a book. It would just be, you know, pages of, of ideas. Uh, but he wanted to, he wanted to translate it into Russian and have a Russian skydiving book. You know, I said, so I could do this. Like after three months, I could just give it to you and you could, you know, translate it as you want and do something in Russia with it. Uh, <laughs> and he actually, he actually, uh, paid me enough that I could work half time for three months and uh, I just wrote down the ideas for how to win the world, mate. And, you know, some of it was skydiving and some of it was just, you know, the training aspect of it, uh, the mental aspect of it. Uh, and, you know, anything peak performance oriented, regardless of the endeavor. Uh, and at the end of the three months, I gave him all the, you know, gave him about 200 pages of, of information and, and he had lost interest. So, <laughs> uh, so I was sitting there with 200 pages that I had just written and nothing to do with it. And, you know, I gave it to a few friends and I really didn't have any, you know, very many personal stories in there. That wasn't what it was about. It was something he asked me to write. Uh, but I had a couple of things that that did have personal stories because uh, I, I couldn't figure out a better way to, to make my point than using a story. Um, so I gave it to a few friends. It's a whole 200 pages and just had them read it and ask, you know, man, what should I do with this? What do you think of this? And anytime you're getting uh, feedback about about writing, you're going to get different opinions from everybody. Of course. Uh, but the one thing that they all agreed on was that they really liked the personal stories, that the personal stories had more of an impact on them and were, were more worthwhile than, than the other parts. Um, so my kids were young at the time. And I thought if I was really going to write a book, what would I what would I want it to be about? And I said I'd want it, I wouldn't want it to be a skydiving book as such. I wouldn't want mm -hmm. it to be just about skydiving. I'd want it to be something that my kids could read and get something out of. That uh, hopefully friends could read and get something out of. So uh, I started basically writing all the stories that I could think of and all the experiences I had that that made me into somebody who would make decisions to follow their passions as much as I did, uh, and to, mm. to take on those challenges and overcome the obstacles that led to becoming a world champion. 
Well, and it, it seems to me that uh, it's the ability to overcome those those personal obstacles uh, that makes the sport so special. And I find that as I speak to more and more jumpers and you ask them their favorite memories of skydiving aren't the jumps. It's the experiences around those jumps and the people and the stories and the reasons that everyone ended up there. So I completely agree that the personal stuff is kind of what makes this such an amazing sport. Yep, I agree completely. It's, so you've had some some amazing times. You've had some rough ones as well, though, too. Um, I know that you've had to overcome some real hardships in the sport. Um, you were involved in a pretty serious accident as well. Yeah, that would have been in 1992 uh, with my team, Air Moves. So what what transpired on, on, on that occasion? Uh, it was a beautiful April day in Southern California, and uh, we were taking off on uh, for a training jump. Uh, and uh, the plane had an engine failure at about 150 feet. Uh, and the pilot didn't, you know, it's, if the same thing had happened at 2,000 feet, it would have been a complete non-event. Uh, mm. But at 150 feet, the pilot has to respond correctly and immediately. And uh, mm. didn't happen like that. And uh, the, the plane crashed. We lost 16 of the 22 people who, who were on it. I was fortunate enough to survive. That uh, that crash was was skydiving lore as as I came into skydiving and, and a lot of the training that uh, I went through, especially with the larger aircraft, came about specifically because of that crash. Uh, now you survived, but w- with some some serious injuries. I mean, you had quite the rehab to get back uh, and going again. Uh, yeah, yeah, I was out for uh, I was in a coma for about six weeks. Uh, broke my neck, collapsed uh, one lung. Had all sorts of other, you know, internal damage, just being banged up. Uh, sure. But, but fortunately, uh, they were all injuries that could be overcome. Well, and and I think it takes a it takes a strong will to to push through that. Clearly, one that you have, and and to be able to continue on the way that you did is pretty damn spectacular. Uh, I mean, you're you're still as active in the sport as anyone, and there's a lot of people, non jumpers, that would. Uh, uh, would wonder how you could manage to do that after living through something like that. I mean, that's that's pretty hardcore. Uh, what do you think? Uh, what pushed you through? Well, like I said before, I'm not all that bright. <laughs> so, uh, and, and I, you know, when I was had the team in Paris, and from the time that I got out of college and was getting involved with skydiving, but mostly by the uh, with the team in Paris with air moves, it really was honestly living my dream. I had the sport that I just loved. Uh, I had taken the sport and my teams to one of the highest levels. We hadn't won the world championships, but we were one of the best teams in the world. Mm. Uh, I had a team that I was just with my best friends. I had an opportunity on a drop zone to really push this team. Um, mm. I was, I was, you know, living living your dream is the most overused phrase in the world. But once you've had the chance to experience life like that, you really don't want to let it go for anything. So I was fortunate enough that uh, I, my spinal cord was intact. My internal organs were working well enough. Uh, there was no reason that I couldn't continue. Which is it's it's amazing the the drive and the desire and then to physically still be able to do so is is pretty spectacular. I actually had the opportunity to talk to uh, a young jumper named Jarrett Martin who had suffered uh, uh, 
pretty bad accident in Hawaii and ended up uh, paraplegic due to it. Uh, but three months later, was back in the air on the front of a tandem with his father and is now still an extremely active jumper. And I think it seems to be a very common theme that uh, the passion that drives us to do this is pretty universal. You know, we're lucky to have something that we love this much. Mm. Uh, you know, I think most people don't, you know, really don't. Oh, I com- something that I completely agree. I, uh, I, I hate to say it, but I, I do, I have to call into question how people can sit behind a desk every day doing something that they hate for the promise that the weekend might not be so bad. Um, I, I don't think there's a day that I go to work or make a skydive that I'm not ridiculously thankful that I still get to do this. <laughs> Yeah. Just I appreciate it every day. So now you you've got children. Do they do they jump as well? Nope, they have no interest in skydiving. <laughs> How do you feel about that? That's okay with me. Just yeah. want them to want them to find things that they love as much as I love this. Absolutely. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter what they are. I uh, I always found that uh, um, I had uh, mixed feelings about my daughter either becoming or not becoming a skydiver, and she's done a couple of jumps, but uh, doesn't have that huge passion for it. And I'm just like you, I'm I'm all right with that. <laughs> yeah, I'm, it's it's not normal, man. <laughs> no, it's not it's, normal, uh, is it? It's like uh, you. I see people sometimes uh, wanting to get in the sport for some other reason than, than they're just fascinated by it and they just love it. Mm. Uh, you know, once in a while there's people who are trying to prove something to themselves or it's a midlife crisis, midlife crisis or some kind of macho trip they're on. And, and that never works out. No, <laughs> no, it it's never does. Be just, just because you love it. And, and it's fine with me that, uh, that my kids, this isn't what attracts them, but they, they understand though, that they, they want to find something they love as much as I love this and, and pursue that. Well, and I, I can't imagine that they don't look, even if skydiving isn't their thing, they have to have a great appreciation for it just because of the passion that it drives in you. Uh, and they, I mean, what a great example to be set for them that it doesn't matter what it is you have that passion for as long as you find it. Absolutely. Hopefully it's legal. Yeah, <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> so uh, what comes next for Dan BC? Ah, well, I'm really enjoying running the drop zone and trying to make Skydive Paris uh, the best drop zone in the world. Mm. Um, and it's uh, even the stuff that comes with, you know, you know, sitting behind the desk and uh, the the moments that like you were talking about that you have to deal with as well, that those those things that themselves aren't the fun, but uh, the goal is so rewarding and the goal is so much fun that it's worth doing. Uh, the other things that you, of course, have to do. Well, and I would imagine, too, from your position, because of all the experience that you've got behind you and your draw and drive to make this such an amazing drop zone, uh, that even the the bullshit paperwork and the stuff that you don't want to have to deal with is still the means to an end to make it just a spectacular place. Yep, it sure is. And it's, you know, it just, look look back to skydiving is the perfect example of it. You know, you may, uh, for your one minute of skydiving or two minutes if you want to you know count the canopy ride as well uh you know you've got to spend 10 minutes packing 20 minutes in the airplane uh you know 10 minutes dirt diving whatever all the stuff that goes into it just because that one minute is so great so it's worth it's worth investing all the other parts they're just part of it 
Well, and, and Paris is a, uh, as a drop zone was the first one that I went to that had such a full community. Uh, and uh, I was lucky enough to start jumping in that place when free flying was really taking over and the Flyboys called that place home. And so to go out and, and to see, you know, my personal heroes at the time that I had just watched on their VHS Chronicles video doing all these incredible things. And next thing you know, I'm on the plane and I'm sitting next to Fritz or Eli or um, yeah. next thing you know, I'm competing against Tanya and Craig who destroyed us in sky surfing, but it was still an amazing time, you know, and that was all Paris Valley was just the West Coast Mecca. And I don't think it's ever really slowed down. I mean, Paris Valley is is one of the premier drop zones, not just in the U.S., but in the world. So what an amazing place to be running. And it's a great, you know, we it's a great community, all the different people from the different disciplines. Uh, it's all one family. It's all everybody sharing the skies, sharing the planes, sharing the drop zone. It really uh impressed and respectful of, of everybody else's, you know, passion, everybody else's discipline. It's all skydivers having a great sure. time together. No matter how, no matter how you like to fly, it just doesn't, doesn't no, make it really difference. doesn't. Cause around the bonfire, no style comes into play. It's just a bunch of skydivers, you know, um, <laughs> That was one exactly. of the other points that got brought up. Uh, and Paris is a very international drop zone as well, people coming from all around the world. But I'm sure you've done a, a fair bit of traveling for skydiving. And it doesn't matter where you go. It's just skydivers with different accents. So true. So to find your book and to find out more information about Paris Valley, uh, have we got websites we can send them to, uh, Instagram accounts? Where where should everybody go looking to, to get the book and to hear about the drop zone? Uh skydiveparis.com okay. uh, is the website and uh, also on Facebook as well. Uh, the book is titled Above All Else. You can find it on Amazon or at Square One. And uh, myself, I have a website which is just danbrotskychenfeld.com, which is a mouthful. Probably should have made it Dan BC, but <laughs> it's got it all. Um, so we need to get everybody out there to check out the book Above All Else. Skydive Paris Valley. If you've never jumped before, you want to make a first-time skydive, and you're out in California, uh, definitely Southern California, head out to Paris Valley. SkydiveParis.com. All right. Um, anything else? Any parting words for people that haven't made any jumps yet or uh, young jumpers that are looking for a little bit of inspiration? What do you want to say to them? I, you know, if people, if you're on the fence and you've been thinking about it, the best thing to do is just come out to the drop zone for a day and, and watch. Uh, most people have an impression for what they think a drop zone is going to be, and they're pretty shocked when they see it's nothing like that at all. Uh, and Paris is a great place. We've got a nice restaurant, pool. You can just hang out and watch people do their first jump, watch uh, all the experienced jumpers, and, and really get a feel for the community that it is, as well as the incredible sport uh, that it is. Well, I couldn't recommend it more as well. I mean, uh, even if they're only going to come out and do one jump, uh, I've seen a lot of people that might not do a second, but I've never seen anybody regret doing that first one. And you'll be amazed how many people do their second. Uh, you know, we have, at Paris right now, it's it's amazing how many people are sticking with the sport uh, who have started. We had like 30 percent, 30, 30 something percent of our AFF students got licensed last year. That's incredible. <laughs> That's really high numbers. Yeah, wow, it's, it's, I'm impressed. It's it's crazy, but it's because of uh, the community. As you said, people don't realize they go out, they do their first jump, they have an amazing experience on the jump, and they also realize this is a great place, great people. You know, I, I'd like to be more a part of this. 
Well, and, and uh, luckily for us, I don't think skydiving's going anywhere. It's just going to keep getting more innovative and more creative and, and even more fun. I agree. All right. Well, Dan, thank you so much for being with us today. I really appreciate you talking to us, and uh, hopefully we get a whole bunch of people out your way in Paris to come uh, make some jumps and have a whole lot of fun. Great. Thank you, Dean. It's been a pleasure, man. Take care. All right. Well, I definitely want to thank an amazing guest, Dan BC, again for sitting down and talking to me. Hell, I'd like to thank all of my guests so far. Everybody's been absolutely fantastic. We've had some pretty fucking great folks on to sit down and chat about their experiences and not just skydiving, but in lots of extreme sports. And we've got a whole lot more to come. In fact, a quick taste of a few names to come. Tell me, who the fuck are you? What do you do? My name is Regan Settler. Hey, Dean. My name is Andy Ford. Uh, my name is Eric Von Kennel, a.k.a. Captain Volcano. Uh, Jim Dolan. My name is Pablo Hernandez from Spain. Uh, my name is Brian Vasher from England. Ciao. I am Armando Fatoruso from Italy. Ciao. I'm Mario Fatoruso from Italy. So you're going to want to make sure you stick around to hear those and many more people coming up. Uh, the list of guests is, is starting to get pretty fucking respectable. Now, in the meantime, uh, helping out with all things Lunatic Fringe, the one, the only, the most amazing magazine in the known universe. You know them. You love them. Blue Skies Mag. BlueSkiesMag.com is where you're going to want to go to do a whole bunch of things. You want to be able to get previously published issues of the magazine if you, you can't find that special issue. You want to get a little bit of swag. They've got the stickers and the leggings and the pull-up cords and all that stuff. Uh, you also want to be able to advertise that new toy that you've made, that new uh, offer that you've got, that new drop zone that's up and running. Blue Skies Mag is who you want to talk to for advertising. They can definitely get your stuff out out there to a whole bunch of people. So think about them next time you're getting ready to try and plug that new idea you've got going on. As far as me, you can find me all, well, all over the fucking place. Uh, you can find me on Facebook as the fucking pilot. You can find me on Instagram as the princess pilot, the princess pilot on Instagram. Uh, and of course, on my website, thefuckingpilot.net. At thefuckingpilot.net, uh, you can get a whole bunch of things. First off, you can find uh, links to any and every platform for podcasting. Uh, that way you can get uh, any previous uh, issues of this, any episodes of this. You also have access to both the books that I've got out, both the Blue Skies Magazine fucking pilot book, as well as uh, The Accidental Stripper. Uh, both of them available on Amazon with the link straight from the website on the fucking pilot.net. will take you right there. Um, the Accidental Stripper will actually be coming out in audiobook form, hopefully here in the near future, if I can actually manage to say out loud some of the outrageous shit that I wrote down. Uh, it turns out it's a hell of a lot easier to type that stuff out than it is to read it. But... I'm trying to make it available on audiobook as well. So once again, hit up blueskiesmagazine.com for all your skydiving-based jumping and exciting shit needs. Advertising, all that kind of fun stuff as well. Hit up the fucking pilot.net to buy a couple of books and get a, a few giggles and uh, be ready for all those and many, many more amazing guests. Uh, once again, it's been our privilege and our pleasure having you along for another edition of Lunatic Fringe Into the Void. We'll see you next time around and blue skies.